Hi, this is Dr. Adrian. Welcome to Health Bite, the podcast where we explore all things health and wellness. Hi, and welcome back to Health Bite, our podcast where we discuss all things health and wellness. I am so happy today to have with us Dr. Tracy O'Connell. Dr. O'Connell is a recovering radiologist. I love that, and we have to talk more about that who's also a mindset coach working with teens and adults, helping them gain courage to show up more boldly and authentically in everything they do. She is a trained integrative health coach. She also is certified in a certified daring way, a facilitator using Brene Brown techniques, whom we all love and adore. So thank you, Tracy, for being here. I'm so happy to have you. I am so glad to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's my pleasure. You know, um, I didn't get to this, but in our conversations before, you had mentioned that you want to manifest a emotion revolution in healthcare. And I usually, I start with a different question, but I want to dive into that a little bit because I think that's so important. Emotion revolution in healthcare. Can you tell us what you're trying to do and and why you see that need? Well, um, I've always been kind of an idealist, right? So, and I I went into medicine with a very idealistic notion of how I would be able to make an impact um, on a daily basis and maybe even a global basis of, you know, one life at a time. And while I entered medical school to be a psychiatrist, that's a story for another day, I I really ended up finding psychiatry um, so focused on mental illness instead of wellness. And um, it was really overwhelming for me as a, you know, young person in their twenties to, to kind of go to the psychotic end of the spectrum. Um, but after being in medicine and in radiology, which is really devoid of a lot of emotional things, I mean, sitting in the dark, really separate from the patient, except doing procedures, um, barium work and CT and ultrasound guided biopsies, which I always found very rewarding with that kind of patient contact. Um, I realized that I really didn't have the emotional support that I needed to be able to do the work that I was doing. Um, Not just the challenges of balancing home and work and, and all of those things, but just sort of not having access to the emotional vocabulary, like having it be okay to have my own feelings in the workplace. And I think that all people relate to that, right? It's not just in medicine. Our whole culture has kind of been built upon this rugged individualism that that you need to just buck up and be tough. And um, I think people can sustain that for a while, but it and it can be very good in the in the finite, right? If you're just trying to get a task done or complete, you know, get through something that's difficult. But with the the pace and that they stress the levels that we've learned to tolerate or even expect in our culture, uh, in any profession, um, of what's sort of now the norm or status quo has gotten, it's exceeded our body's ability to to cope in a lot of ways. And people think that condition, like once you reach twenty one or eighteen, that you're supposed to have your act together. And you don't need any help. And if you're having emotional struggles or feeling anything that's inconsistent with what's happening in the here and now, right? Maybe you've got stuff going on elsewhere or your own concerns. um, And that's not okay to express that. It kind of um, erodes our humanity. And so I feel like in medicine and 
particular, even pre-pandemic, you know, we, we needed more of that support. And I just think that until that becomes normalized and sort of addressed as being a, a, adult life is difficult, life is difficult, not just for adults, kids too. Um, and kind of how do we cope and help each other as opposed to there's something wrong with you if you're having a hard time. <laughs> Yeah, there's so much in what you said. And I want to highlight just for a moment, the, the whole concept or the aspect of um, the therapeutic relationship with a physician. Because I think like you, um, you know, I myself also went into medicine for the same reasons for the desire to connect and to help and to heal. And I think most physicians did and do but the system, not only in our training, uh, but also in the way we are, we are meant to practice, you know, under time constraints, um, takes out that opportunity for us to connect with our patients. And I think the consequence is to us, you know, the detriment is to us as physicians, as well as to us as patients. And I have experienced it on both sides of the spectrum. I think it's important to highlight that just even briefly in this podcast where our audience is not necessarily physicians, but, you know, normal folks like we all are, because I think that if they recognize that the physician does care, does want to connect, does want to create that therapeutic alliance, that it would take away a little bit of that barrier that has been created by the systems and has given an impression, right, that we don't care or want to do all of those things. In fact, we do. And so sometimes um, the reminder comes from the patient themselves in putting it out there, um, you know, when we fall short, because sometimes we miss the mark. Yeah. And I think that gets into these power struggles, right? These Any kind of time that you have a power structure in place or a hierarchy, we know there's actually science to back this up that, that power erodes compassion. So when you go in to any kind of helping profession, let's say it's not even medicine, it's teaching, it's you know being a, a clinical social worker, all sorts of ways that we go in to help with really sincere, heartfelt intentions. Um, as soon as there becomes these power structures of like, there's somebody at the top and then even, even societal, like back in the day, it was maybe the, the priest in the community or there was somebody that was elevated, right? That that everybody or in our, our political culture, right? There's this kind of notion of, well, somebody knows more than me or somebody's more special than me. We could really go off on this tangent, but I'm just going to say that what happens is we are all humans. And when we stop operating on that common humanity level, we kind of get in trouble because then when the people who are elevated actually have human qualities, they're seen as weak or defunct or incompetent. And when the people who are not at the top are suffering, um, they don't get the attention that they need. Yeah, and we could really go off on a tangent, but I think I'll just um, say that one thing I think that is positive lately is in trends in medicine is that that kind of paternalistic approach, I think, is going away with kind of the newer generation and that uh, idea that there is this kind of hierarchy or, you know, leader slash power 
and subject role. I don't even like to talk about it that way, but I think that that's eroding, which is nice. I'm glad you said that because I do, I do have hope, a lot of hope for just what people will even tolerate anymore, right? The younger uh, millennials are, are better at, uh, at setting boundaries and recognizing that they're in this for the long game and how are they going to sustain these kind of structures. They're, they're, they're not going to tolerate it the way that maybe as the, as the frog in the hot water and the, and the temperature slowly turns up, those of us who were in the midst of the change didn't notice it as much, but those just entering the water are like, man, this is too hot, like turn it down. And so they have a level, different level of to- tolerance, I think. And I like that you brought that up because I think it is a nice segue into what we want to dive into. And this concept that um, the younger generation, who's not that much younger than us, but they are, um, they are disruptors in the sense of um, setting boundaries and what they're willing to tolerate. And I, as an observer, actually have learned a lot um, because I think... To your earlier point about uh, bucking up, I think we've all been taught that in order to move forward, we need to um, endure the maximal uh, torture that we can in order to succeed. Um, and I think what, what the younger generations are teaching us is that boundaries are important. And we don't, we don't have, well, I wanna say generationally, this is a major broad, Uh, broad generalization, but we don't have or haven't been raised to have the same boundaries. But having those boundaries is such an important part of um, self-compassion, which is what we wanted to get into today, of being able to um, set boundaries without feeling like it's selfish or, um, you know, a moral dilemma to care for ourselves in that way, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's such a beautiful... That is a beautiful segue. And I think that, you know, we're, we're in this culture again um, of kind of using the critic or like the um, almost militant or disciplinarian, like that's how we get stuff done. And again, that can help like roll the big rock up the mountain, but then it just will crush us again. If we don't have ways to, it doesn't work to berate ourselves for long. In other words, it doesn't give us that inner sense of strength it actually weakens us in this, in this kind of paradoxical way because we can't sustain that level of intensity. We can't sustain, like, it, I almost think of the analysis, analogy, and I feel like we might've talked about this before, like you can abuse your body with alcohol and drugs up to a certain time period, and then your body will just rebel. Um, it won't be able to pull a bender and then show up at work the next morning. your body will eventually say enough. And I think that's where the self-compassion piece comes in. You know, people think of, there's a lot of myths about self-compassion in our society. Yeah, maybe we can just start by you defining what that is, because there is data around it, but it would be helpful to first just say, what is self-compassion? How do you define that? Well, it's often helpful for people to start with even what is compassion, you know, um, which is this idea that you see something, someone in trouble or hurting, and you don't just say, oh, I recognize that, but there's this desire to help. There's a desire to ease or comfort. And so we, we quite, and there's again, science around this um, from the Greater Good Science Center up at Berkeley um, and Dr. Keltner about that we, we really, there is science to support that as mammals, we have innate compassion 
um, within us. Like that's not something we're taught. That's why, that's why mammals take care of their young or even birds take care of the young, right? It's, it's innate in us. And, um, so we have this desire to help others. And then again, it's that concept of when we get overwhelmed, when our compassion system gets overwhelmed, we can't call on it anymore. Um, but the whole idea of compassion is that sense of I'm feeling, I see that you're suffering and I want to help you. With the self-compassion, it's really turning that back on ourselves, like almost looking like a Google satellite view down on the planet, zoom, zoom, zoom down into the individual, like your circumstance, being able to see yourself from outside of yourself and say, look, I talk to yourself almost as a third party. Like I see you, you're hurting. I want to help you. I don't want you to suffer. It's not okay for you to suffer. You're not supposed to suffer. That's not your purpose here. You're supposed to thrive. And maybe in the midst of your thriving, you've convinced yourself that suffering is necessary. And yet really calling into question and having that little bit of dialogue with yourself. So Kristen Neff is the mother of self-compassion. She even says herself that she did not invent the concept, but she's done a ton of research on it. So she's the one that people often refer to. And she says that there's these three components, um, recognizing that you're not alone, like that this feeling is common, that every human feels this way. It's not unique to you so that you don't feel isolated, right? And then this idea of mindfulness of really being, this is unique to right now, like being present right here, right now, this is what I'm feeling, as opposed to generalizing, there's something wrong with me, or I'm having it, this, this over-identification with, this is who I am, this is bad, I'm bad, the shaming, that type of thing. But just saying in this moment, feeling this and then this this real kindness to the self the real the real gent there's and there this is where I love that she talks about there's two kinds of self-compassion even people often think it's sitting in lotus just being still and quiet or maybe even self-care practices as being self-compassion but it's really not it's actually um there's a yin and a yang to self-compassion and both are necessary the yin is the nurturing, maternal, soothing, comforting voice. Um, and the, the yang is the fierce sort of protective mama bear. Like we have got to act like, like a firefighter. The house is on fire. The right thing to do is to mobilize, take action, like use that force for good and to, to save yourself, right? And so we need both of those um, and, and to recognize that it's not weak to speak to yourself this way. But, but she also distinguishes, and I just, I just saw her in a, in a video conference last week, so it's very fresh in my mind, but she also distinguishes self-compassion from self-care because what's interesting, if you're talking about folks that are trying to incorporate this in your daily life, right? Self-care usually comprise is things we have to do either before or after work or on our own time or when our families will let us have me time. You know, it's, it's sort of separate from our lives. And people say often, you hear the quote, uh, put on your own life, you know, your oxygen mask first on the plane and then help, you know, the, those around you. But she makes the analogy that 
it's actually self-care is what you do before you get on the plane and once you get off the plane. But when you're on the plane during the flight, that's when you need self-compassion because you need to be able to say, you need to be able to take care of yourself first. Like I'm on the plane. If you want to stick with the plane analogy, I'm feeling anxious. There's turbulence. Um, I need to, you know, get a grip, cope with myself, be kind to myself, recognize that, yes, I'm owning this. I'm feeling this way. I'm here in this plane. This is why everyone feels this way. I'm normal. And it's, it's temporary. We're going to be okay. Like that kind of voice. Yeah. There's a few actionable, you know, items in what you said. And I want to just go back to the three components that Kristen Neff discusses in mindful self-compassion, which is like you said, one, identifying or recognizing the feeling. And there is also data that shows that just by identifying and labeling that feeling, like I am anxious, I am sad, I am, you know, feeling longing, whatever the case may be, merely just labeling it has a way of kind of tempering the intensity around that feeling. So it's one, identifying the feeling, um, it's showing kindness, having that feeling. So a lot of times we feel stressed and anxious and something that I have myself felt and I've heard a lot of people, my patients, my colleagues talk about during this particular time of the pandemic is that, you know, some of us have been fortunate that, for example, we can continue doing our jobs. So I have transitioned mostly to telemedicine and I was able to continue working, for example. And I felt a lot of kind of guilt about not, or you know, I felt uh, I felt empathy for the people who were sick, for example, or who couldn't continue their work, right? And it's being able to recognize that um, it's okay for you to feel the way you feel, right? It's okay for you to be compassionate in where you are. And the third point is that. Um, the common humanity piece that we're all kind of the same, regardless of where we are in life. We all have the same feelings. We have all the same or similar experiences. And I think as a physician or as a health coach and a facilitator, you hear this common commonality, you know, you hear your patients telling you the same stories or themes, right? And so that's a way of really being actionable, labeling it, having kindness for the feeling that you're experiencing and also understanding the common humanity. Yeah, the labeling is huge, actually. And when we started the conversation today about an emotion revolution, you know, there's a lot of work. Um, there's this book, Permission to Feel, um, which is Mark Brackett. And, and that's a really great um, resource for really teaching some of these skills, like being able to actually label and name what you're thinking and feeling. Because as a society, and at least for me personally, I used to have a lot of shame about my feelings, like the feelings we have about our feelings. That's what I was trying to get at, that, that you may feel shame around the feeling, but that having kindness for having that feeling or feeling anxious. We're anxious in this circumstance, even if we're not suffering, even if we're not ill, right? And that's okay to feel anxious, even though you recognize that you're more fortunate than somebody else. Um, is what I was trying to get at. So, yeah, yeah. And the reason why all of this is so important, because I think 
um, when people hear about self-compassion, it sounds like kind of wooey and like sickly sweet and, you know, there's kind of an aversion to it. And also people feel like you said that they need that tough exterior or that toughness in order to get the job done. But actually the science shows that the opposite is true. That if people can have self-compassion to meet themselves where they're at, they're much more likely to achieve their goals. And uh, for me who works in weight loss and behavior change, I know that there's a lot of data around this, that if you can have self-compassion, you're much more likely to make healthy food choices even (laughs) than people who are berating themselves about their weight or their look or quote falling off the wagon. So can you speak to that a little bit? The fact that this is actually necessary for change um, and that may be contrary to what people think that they have to actually be hard on themselves in order to elicit change. Yeah, that's um, such a great way to to frame this because if you don't, if for listeners, if you don't like the word self-compassion, like let's call it something else. Let's call it just being nice to yourself, being your own best friend, like being able to comfort yourself like you would some some people argue with I don't want to comfort myself like those I love because we can often be hardest on the people we love right so maybe it's comforting someone like you know like an, a puppy right however you want to think of it but but the idea is is actually and this is again like scientifically proven that recruits like like veterans from from war times, um, those that have self-compassion fare much better, have much lower PTSD, much lower use of alcohol abuse, um, much less likely to have like suicidal ideation. Like it's really about seeing yourself as like, I mean, we are going to be our one and only lifelong companion, right? It's almost envisioning like walking alongside this companion who has your best interest at heart. And so it does take cultivating though. I will say that like, it's not, some people can have an epiphany and just start integrating this, like talking to themselves. And these are where some practical tips come in. It's often easier for me to say to myself, Tracy, it's okay. You're okay. We're okay. In that voice. And some people really tell me like, I can't do that. I can't talk to myself like that. Um, but it takes practice and it's almost a reprogramming of your hard drive of the messages that you've integrated all along that are purely just cultural, right? They're, they're either learned growing up or in your house of your home or your culture or in your parents or your friends, whatever. It's just learned and, and maybe in school, right? Where like you must get good marks in order to be successful or you know, and we just, we just agree to go along with this, but we could, we could decide and agree to go along with, and to your point, people are much likely, much more likely to succeed and actually have long-term success, whether it's a weight goal or whether it's a nutritional goal or whether it's a lifestyle change or, um, or even a job change, whatever it is, if they are really tuned into, um, there's all this stuff with the science, right? Like if you're berating yourself and chiding yourself and harassing yourself, your cortisol goes up, your insulin goes up, all your stress hormones go up, which actually work against your body in helping to 
lower weight, right? I mean, I'm sure you could go on a lot of tangents with that, but, but our stress hormones make us think we're in danger and we're not safe. And so we hold on to our calories and fat reserves to make sure that we're going to start survive the winter, right? If we can be calm and kind and make our bodies and ourselves feel safe, like everything's okay, then all of those mammalian comfort systems, those, those systems like oxytocin and dopamine and the soothing comes in, which actually then will sustain us, right? Because if you're not in a panic situation with fight, flight, or freeze, but you're calm and collected, like your rational brain and your biochemical stuff you're not even thinking about is going to be working in your favor to, to maintain that state. And that's such a huge motivator. So for people who, you know, have opinions about self-compassion, which, you know, many of us do, and I have to say this was a tough pill for me to swallow when I first learned about it. Um, a potent motivator, I think, is just what you said, that it actually helps facilitate that thing that you wish to have or do or achieve or accomplish. And that the opposite, not having compassion for yourself is much more likely to give you the physiologic stress, like the rise in cortisol, as you mentioned, but also much more likely to, to result in sabotage. So there's a lot of weight loss data uh, and behavioral lifestyle data that shows that if you go about it from, you know, uh, I always say, don't say the F word in my office, but if you go about it from the perspective of I'm fat and I need to do X, Y, and Z, you're less likely to do X, Y, and Z. Whereas if you can um, go about it from a place of self-compassion, then you are much more likely to achieve it. The second point is that, that I think I wanna highlight is also this concept of cultivation. Because I think we all have seen people who seem so kind of self-confident, and I think this is another topic we can dive into, the difference between self-confidence and self-acceptance, and think that, wow, they just were born that way. Uh, and that's not the case. Or, you know, perhaps some people have personality traits that make them more likely to be that way. But actually, it is something to, that can be cultivated, this self-compassion. And I heard this on um, a podcast with Dan Harris recently, uh, where they were doing a month-long um, self-compassion-related um, meditations. And one simple step is just when you wake up in the morning, notice what it is you tell yourself when you see yourself in the mirror. It may be something like, oh, my eyes are so puffy. Or you're getting into the shower and you're, you know, commenting on a bulge or, you know, white hairs or, you know, whatever the case may be. And one of the tips that he gave is just notice what it is that you're saying to yourself and can you turn that around? Can you say something nice to yourself? Like, oh, I like my lips or my eyebrows or, you know, something positive. And actually doing that cultivates, it gets you in the practice, it teaches you and makes it more habitual to have those positive thoughts. So I think it's important just to reiterate for people to know that if you feel like this is not something you can do, it's, it's not necessarily uh it's it's intuitive but it's not necessarily there but it can be cultivated it can be grown and fostered 
Yeah. And in most cases it is like any muscle, it has to be worked and, and nurtured and fortified. And, and just in comment to some of the things that you just said, um, you know, what happens is people who are high in self-confidence, it's because they're high in self-compassion. It's because when they fail, they don't beat themselves up. And people who are low in self-compassion or think that it's just going to be sheer willpower, force, determination, and berating themselves and being a hard ass on themselves are much more likely to just, when they fail, to just quit. They're just going to quit because they cannot sustain. They feel like they've exhausted everything. They've been pushing the, the rock up the hill for too long and they're just done. But people who have that kind inner voice and recognize that everyone, that failure is merely just not meeting the expectation you had and, and just that, hey, we got this. We're going to try again. Let's try it from this angle. Let's approach it from this. Let's be flexible. Let's maneuver. Let's keep our eye on what we're going for and be kind to ourselves. Notice the, the beauty in ourselves and the things about us that are going well and where our strengths lie and how we can comfort ourselves when things don't go well. We're much less likely to give up. We're much more likely to sustain and persevere and actually be a lot happier as Dan Harris would approve. Right, right. And so it's it's being durable in your behaviors, right? So it's one thing to force yourself to lose 15 pounds to stay with the weight loss um, analogy, right? Um, by being overly or super restrictive and, you know, braiding yourself. But it's another thing to be able to maintain that. And that really comes from, engaging in a process that is, like you said, sustainable or durable, which requires self-compassion, which requires that kindness piece. Otherwise you, you give up. Yeah. Cause you, otherwise you don't, you'll just fatigue. Like nobody can stand, I mean, no marathon runner, even 50 mile runners, like they can't run forever. Yeah. I also want to just point out the difference between self-acceptance and self-confidence because self-confidence dependent upon having achieved something right and being confident that you can accomplish it. Whereas self-acceptance comes without any strings of um, pre-measured uh, success. So if you can accept yourself where you are at in that moment, regardless of what you have accomplished or have not, then again, you are more likely to succeed. As opposed to self-confidence, again, to make the point, is based on having already achieved something. And so I think it is a tangent to self-compassion because again, if we are trying to um, achieve something that we haven't done or that feels really um, cumbersome or burdensome, you know, like the hurdle of having to lose 50 pounds feels really monumental, but self-acceptance allows you to engage in that even if you haven't done it before or haven't been quote successful before. And I think that that again, is a, is a adjacent, is a close cousin to self-compassion. Yeah. And I would offer that, like, kind of what you're describing too, is self-esteem, right? Is self-esteem and self-confidence can be kind of put together sometimes too. And self-esteem is often earned. It's from accomplishing something. And then it needs to constantly be fed. You have to constantly earn it. Like maybe if your self-esteem is sort of based on external metrics, you know, and so when you work for something outside of yourself and you get it, 
yes, you feel great for a little while and then you need to feed the, the monster again, right? It, it will constantly be pushing you to, to get that high or get that sense of self. Whereas just to everything you just said, to accepting and really um, just allowing for what is, is you're gonna put your whole body and mindset in a space that's much more likely to be encouraging and be able to, to shift and pivot and not need everything to go smoothly to be okay. There are ways in which people can more systematically cultivate this. So we talked about, you know, some of the things you can do, like, you know, talking to yourself in a kinder way, the three steps of mindful self-compassion, but there's actually meditations, mindfulness meditations that people can engage in as a practice, a regular practice to help cultivate that. Can you give some guidance on where people might be able to find these resources? Yeah, well, so for me, um, and I will say this was huge for me, I had really struggled for for so long with anxiety and, and sometimes being so burned out from anxiety that I became depressed at different times in my life where, again, based when I was living my life in the self-esteem need, when I was constantly needing to to maintain that and to get through, you know, training or to get the next, through the next hoop, my next goal in my life. And I kind of burned through all my reserves. And I I did see a psychiatrist who said, I said to her, am I always going to be this way? Am I always going to be anxious and exhausted? Am I able to change? And she said, of course. And I said, how? (laughs) And she said, she recommended to me this audio. And now this has been maybe 15 years ago now. I'd have to look back on my calendar. But but she recommended these, these audios um, by Bell Ruth Napperstack, which uh, is a funny name, but I will spell it for the listeners, which is B-E-L-L-E-R-U-T-H. And her last name is Napperstack, N-A-P, I want to say A-R-S-T-E-K. And they're available on iTunes. Um, and I think they're available in CD and cassette and all the things on Amazon. Um, but it really, what I, what I was required to do was to listen to these audio recordings. They were affirmations, listen to them every day for like 12 minutes. I didn't have to be just doing nothing. I could be, you know, in my car or I could be doing an activity, washing the dishes or cooking, but I had to listen to and repeat either silently in my head or out loud the affirmations. And I, the first, I know I had it memorized because I, although I was instructed to do it once a day for a, a month, I did it twice a day for several months because I was a special case. <laughs> and I really felt so soothed by this idea because it would say things like, I know sometimes I feel angry, sad, frustrated, or hurt. And I accept what I feel without criticism or blame. And it would go on in these things and all these. And I remember at first, you know, I'd fall asleep or I'd get distracted or I'd be frustrated. What did she just say? I didn't remember it. It doesn't matter. It's not about perfecting it or doing it just right. It's literally getting, it's accessing a different part of your brain to reprogram your default setting from you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not trying hard enough. Push, 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 push. Stop, 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 suffer, suffer. It was really about like cultivating this self-compassion muscle, this, this inner voice that said, I've got you. 
your feelings are valid. You're still worthy of love and belonging. You're still here. And some people think of that as woo-woo, but look, I mean, the brain is the brain. And there are parts of our brain who are ignored in the way that we practice our daily lives. And so if we want to achieve something and the way we've been doing it isn't working, that at that time in my life, I realized I have to do the opposite. Like all the ways that, yes, what I've done has gotten me where I am, but I don't like where I am now and I want it to change. And so I'm not going to be able to use those same methods that got me here that I'm stuck in now. I'm going to have to pursue and train some other ways like one would do after they had a car accident and lost mobility of a certain body part, right? A way to teach the body, or if you're blind in one eye, you learn that you only can see out of the other eye. I mean, these things are remapping. And I want to just synopsize that, um, that, and it's interesting because I was just speaking to a colleague of mine yesterday who's on the front lines, and he was sharing with me that he's had this like constant anxiety uh, for the last, you know, six to 12 months almost now. And that he has noticed that the anxiety is now shifting to dysphoria or, or sadness or depression. And so I think it's a good point to make that the striving or the anxiety that might go around striving or overworking can shift into depression and that this practice can help address that. And so there's some resources you gave that we'll put in the show notes, but I would also just add that people can just, you know, search for mindfulness, mindful self-compassion, and there's an abundant amount of resources to get you started um, just to dip your toes into this, because I think this transition from anxiety, which I think collectively we've been experiencing in this difficult time, Uh, shifting towards depression is probably a common feeling that we are experiencing even more so right now. And so I wanted to give that resource. Um, This has been such a great conversation. And tell us, uh, Dr. Tracy, if people want to reach out or learn more about your programs and your coaching, where's the best place to find you? Well, I want to thank you also. I've just had such a great time and I love these kind of engaging dynamic conversations. Um, yeah, I have a website. Uh, it's tracyoconnellmd.com. And I'm also on Instagram just for fun, like just kind of post the things that I'm thinking about and feeling and or that make me think lots of quotes. And I've been having fun doing my own graphics and things. And, um, and I kind of also post on um, Facebook, like double post some of those things. Great. Well, thank you again. It was a pleasure speaking with you and I hope we can talk again soon. So great. It would be my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. 